Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 17, 2018. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. Frank remains on assignment with robots. Please send emails encouraging his early return. You can find him at frankthemaninblack at westworld.edu. I'm lucky enough to welcome two excellent guests this week. Amy McGuire is the Leon Jaworski Professor of Biomedical Ethics and Director of the Center for Medical Ethics and health policy at Baylor College of Medicine. Her research focuses on the clinical integration of emerging technologies with a particular focus on ethical and policy issues in human genetics and genomic research. Uh, Dr. McGuire serves as a member of the National Advisory Council for Human Genome Research from 2011 through 2015. With us is Natalie Ram, a professor of law at the University of Baltimore School of Law. She teaches administrative law, bioethics, health law, patents, and property. Her research focuses on the intersection of bioethics and the law and has been doing some particularly interesting work on the intersection of genomics and provisions in the Bill of Rights and the extent privacy protections can be used to slow down what I guess I'll be calling the surveillance state. Back in April, Natalie, police arrested Joseph James D'Angelo and have charged him with being the Golden State Killer. His arrest was based on DNA evidence, but not because of the more typical matches we're used to today, where someone's where a suspect's DNA is matched to uh, a sample in FBI CODIS or something like that. Can you take up the story from there and explain the particular uh, intricacies and oddities of this case? Investigators believe that the Golden State Killer is a single perpetrator who committed a series of more than a dozen murders and nearly 50 rapes, depending on um, whose account you read, uh, over the course of more than a decade in the 70s and 80s before kind of disappearing um, off the map. And uh, investigators uh, at that time were able to store and keep lots of crime scene evidence. And with the advent of genetic sequencing and forensic genetic identification, uh, investigators decided after they couldn't find a match for the Golden State Killer in the FBI's CODIS, ENDIS um, uh, law enforcement database, that they would try to develop a more fulsome genetic profile from the crime scene evidence that then could be compared to other kinds of databases, databases not compiled for law enforcement purposes. And in this case, uh, they used that profile to first compare uh, a sequence of the Y chromosome, that uh, the chromosome that uh, is transmitted from father to son in patrilineal lines, um, to a Y search database uh, used for genealogical research um, in a, a that's operated through a company called Family Tree DNA. Uh, that proved not to uh, yield a positive identification. The police did obtain a, a subpoena to require the company to disgorge um, uh, a user's name and financial information um, to track down the person uh, whose DNA was a partial match. That was that person was was not a match ultimately. And then the police turned to a publicly searchable genealogical database called GED Match, where they uploaded this crime scene profile that they developed from the 
the crime scene uh, evidence, compared that to the folks who had shared their genetic information, uh, looking for lost relatives or unknown relatives or missing relatives or whatever. Uh, and uh, they uh, identified a number of partial matches that they then developed family trees for, identified from there some uh, persons of interest, and then zeroed in on Mr. D'Angelo. Uh, once they did that, they sort of followed him around and collected items that he had discarded um, and then tested the DNA on that uh, on those items to uh, confirm the DNA match between their crime scene profile and his own DNA. And that's when they arrested him to great fanfare. So what's really unusual about this is kind of three different things. One, that the investigators were uh, searching in a non-law enforcement DNA database, a genealogical research database or, or, or uh, a, a database created for doing a genealogical uh, searching. Uh, second, that the police were using familial searches. That is, they weren't looking for a perfect match to someone in, in the genealogical database, but looking for a partial match that would indicate a family member might have been, might be the Golden State Killer. And third, that they collected these discarded items, this abandoned DNA, to uh, confirm the match uh, or confirm their suspect. When you were talking about the Y-chrome so, uh, search, you noted that there was a subpoena. Yes. Was there with regard to the GED match search? There was no subpoena for the GED match search. Uh, investigators um, took the DNA profile that they had developed from the crime scene DNA and uploaded it as if that was, you know, their DNA and that they were looking for their own, you know, unknown or long lost genetic relatives. Uh, they, they presumably checked the box that said, this is my DNA and or DNA for which I have authority to upload it to search for genealogical relatives, um, which, you know, question whether that's an accurate statement. Um, but this was a publicly searchable database. Anyone who has their genetic information can upload it to this um, platform to, to compare with other folks who have also done the same thing. So Amy, let's, let's turn it over to you. Where is the DNA information coming from that ends up in GED match and I guess a little more detail on, on the type of searching and what's going on here. Yeah, so GED Match is one of these platforms that allows consumers who have had their genetic testing done through a direct-to-consumer genetic testing company, for example, like 23andMe, um, which is a company where you can essentially send in a saliva sample and they will give you back genotyped information about yourself. And you can then upload that information to other websites in order to try to, to connect with um, genetic relatives to learn more about who you might be related to. So people who have gotten genetic testing through companies like 23andMe or other ancestry testing companies like Family Tree DNA um, or other companies where you can basically just send in a saliva sample and they'll test your DNA to see what parts of the world your ancestors came from, what is your heritage, those sorts of things. They have voluntarily uploaded their information into the GED Match platform in an effort to connect with more people who they might share some genetic relation to. So why did law enforcement need sort of the, the intermediary of GED match? Why couldn't they have, for example, gone to 23andMe or something like that, or one of the those other providers of 
direct-to-consumer genetic tests. So they had initially tried to do that by going to family tree DNA and trying to match with their database, and they were unsuccessful. So there's really two reasons to go to GED Match. One is that it is a publicly available um, service, so you don't need to presumably get a warrant or um, or anything to to access the people who are in GED Match. They have voluntarily put their information in there with the intention of being connected to other people um, and learning their identity. So that's that's one benefit. The other benefit is GED Match serves as sort of a um, repository for all of these other companies. So individuals who use these various other companies can then upload their information into GED Match and you can capture people who have been consumers from a wide variety of different genetic testing companies. I assume this was sort of a, a rock my world moment. Well, this wasn't the first time that investigators have tried to use genealogical databases. It's the most, uh, the, it appears to be the most successful, uh, but there is a case um, from a couple years ago in which investigators used crime scene DNA to compare to another publicly searchable database. At that time, uh, a publicly searchable database uh, run by Ancestry DNA. That database is no longer publicly searchable um, after news stories were published about what happened. And what happened is that law enforcement found a, a quite close genetic match between the crime scene profile and uh, and an individual in this genealogical database. Uh, they got uh, a subpoena for that person's information, traced his family tree, identified his son who was in the right place and had made some movies that looked like he was interested in violent things, got a warrant for his DNA. So in this case, they got a warrant to get his DNA, not following him around and getting his abandoned DNA um, on discarded items. And and that individual who was investigated proved not to be a match. So it was that was the first uh, kind of big news story about the use of genealogical databases in this way. And it indicated that it was, you know, this is not a silver bullet. It's not always going to be successful. Um, and that's, that's significant in this moment when everyone is looking at this use and, and how it appears to have been successful in a really um, significant case. I think the other thing to keep in mind is this is something that we've been aware of sort of from a research and medical context for a very long time, or at least for several years. DNA, we know, is inherently identifiable. And we also know that it's familial by nature. So you can identify partial matches, as Natalie said, based on family members, some of whom may be fairly distant relatives who you have no idea exist or that you're related to um, in the first place. So you don't have to upload your DNA to a genetic genealogy database for somebody to be able to potentially identify you based on the information that's in that database, as long as one of your distant relatives is in there. And this is something, um, you know, we were involved in a, or I was involved in a project that uh, came out of MIT several years ago, where um, the investigators there looked at how you could match people who were in publicly available research genetic databases to genetic genealogy databases, and through a variety of other publicly available information, um, like obituaries and um, birth certificates, death certificates, you could you could potentially identify people from from that information. That study really kind of rocked the world of research ethics in terms of thinking about how do we protect the privacy of individuals 
who um, contribute their DNA to important biomedical research. And we want to make the results of that research available to as many researchers as we can around the globe. And yet we want to protect the privacy of the individuals from whom that DNA originated. And so we've, we've really sort of spent a lot of time trying to develop policies and practices to protect privacy in this era of increasing numbers of people voluntarily sharing their DNA data in a very public way. Now, without digging too deeply into the science of DNA and DNA matching, do you have a sense of how much DNA material law enforcement would need to do something like this? And on the, if you like, the recipient side, how close does the relative need to be rather than just sort of generating a whole bunch of noise that law enforcement could never uh, deal with? So in terms of how much genetic material you need to have, one of the early studies that was published in 2006 that looked at if you have a sample and you matched it to a DNA database, how much would you need to match? They basically found that if you had 30 to 80 statistically independent SNP positions, which are single single nucleotide polymorphisms. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially your DNA is made up of 3 billion base pairs, which are these letters, A, C, Ts, and Gs, in a series that kind of makes a book. You have a book of letters that are a a combination of A, C, Ts, and Gs that make up your genome. If you look at sort of statistically independent changes in those individual letters that are unique to individuals, right? If you had 30 to 80 of those, which is not a lot, you could match some somebody's sample to their DNA. Most research studies and doing whole genome sequencing, I mean, when we do whole genome sequencing, we're generating, you know, all 3 billion base pairs. um, And when you're even just doing genotyping and other types of less extensive um, sequencing, you're getting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of of base pairs or or SNPs that you can have access to. So there is, you don't need too much, you don't need to sequence too much DNA in order to be able to match it to a database. In terms of, um, how distant your relatives can be in that database, the closer you are in relation to each other, the more DNA you're going to have in common. So um, when Natalie was talking about partial matches and and how good the partial match was, um, if you're more closely related, then you're going to share more DNA and you're going to have a higher match than if you're distally related. But you could still match um, to second, third, fourth degree relatives in a very partial way. And then, the, and then the, the real work comes with, in this case, law enforcement then going and trying, which they did in this, in this Golden State Killer case, is then going and building out a very extensive family tree from the individual who they match to, to try to identify which relatives might be suspects. So as a criminal justice piece, what's interesting about this case is that it involves, or it appears to involve a pretty distant cousin. Um, most of the instances of familial searching in law enforcement investigation, of which I'm aware, uh, have, have been pretty close relatives. There, I know of one that involved a first cousin, but mostly um, when uh, law enforcement is using familial searching in the, uh, you know, the government's own CODIS database or the state's own database to do familial searching, they're typically looking for um, first order relatives, parents and children of a particular individual. And, you know, first, second, third cousins are not going to be genetically similar enough um, at the the SNPs or the the locations in the genome that that those da- 
databases are looking at um, to be all that informative for those more distant relatives. But when we move to this genealogical setting, the non-law enforcement database, and there's so much more DNA that's being examined there, then you can start to potentially sweep in um, identifications based on these more distant relatives. So I read an earlier article by you, Natalie, in which you talked about the legality of including prior criminals in government databases, which appears right to be legal, but you cast very severe doubts as to whether innocent relatives of folks could be included in a database such as CODIS. If I'm correct on that, then this would appear to give law enforcement a uh, an incredible workaround to that issue and that legal impediment. So my prior work has uh, tried to cast doubt, as, as you said, on the use of familial searching um, across different types of databases. My primary or one of my primary concerns um, is one of transparency, uh, that every state in the country and the federal government has a statute on the books, if not more than one, identifying exactly whose DNA should be subject to a database search to solve crimes. And none of those statutes uh, extend to individuals who have not been either arrested or convicted of a crime, right? Every state includes at least some people convicted of certain kinds of crimes. More than half now include um, some individuals arrested for certain types of crimes. Um, But nobody, no state has suggested that ordinary citizens or ordinary individuals should be put in that database. And when the uh, police or other law enforcement um, use familial methods to extend the reach of their otherwise statutorily authorized databases, they're including effectively uh, by a means of, uh, by, you know, biology, uh, all of these individuals who haven't qualified for database inclusion, people who haven't been arrested or previously convicted of a crime. And when law enforcement moves to non-law enforcement data, Bases, I think those concerns are much greater. Those are individuals um, who uh, are not folks who are subject under the uh, the published statutes that states have enacted for da- database search or database inclusion. And so that gives me serious pause um, when it comes to the use of non-law enforcement databases altogether, and particularly the use of any database for familial uh, identification purposes. When we chatted a, a couple of days ago, you used the phrase false profile to describe what the detectives in the GSK case did in uploading the DNA that they had. Does the use of a false profile there, is that the beginnings of an exclusion argument? So it's difficult to see how that might work. Individuals who leave DNA behind at a crime scene are presumed to abandon that DNA just as they abandon um, anything else they leave behind at a crime scene. And that means that they have no expectation of privacy in that information. Uh, And so, you know, police use of that DNA would generally be, you know, outside the protections of the Fourth Amendment. The Supreme Court has expressed concern about uses of genetic information that go beyond the types of identification that have been uh, approved um, statutorily uh, in these kinds of state statutes and the f- uh, federal statute that I'm that I was talking about before that identifies whose DNA can go in the database, right? So in Maryland versus King, in which the U.S. Supreme Court several years ago said uh, it is consistent with the Fourth Amendment to compel a DNA sample from a person merely arrested and not yet convicted of a crime 
the majority opinion there uh, emphasized that the genetic information being examined was non-coding DNA. It didn't tell us anything about what a person looks like, who their relatives are, etc. And in fact, Maryland versus King arose out of the state of Maryland, which is one of only two jurisdictions that has statutorily prohibited the, the kinds of familial searches that I was talking about before, the use of the state's own database for familial searching. So it's possible that the sequencing of all of this other genetic material might go beyond the scope of Maryland versus King and give rise to some sort of Fourth Amendment claim. But it's it's a little difficult to see how that would work, given that we're talking about, you know, material abandoned at a crime scene. Um, and then it's also unclear when the initial investigation begins with a familial match, this kind of partial DNA match, whether the uh, defendant even has kind of Fourth Amendment standing to bring a, a claim, right? So Fourth Amendment rights are typically personal to an individual. If you and I are in a car or you and I are hanging out and I stash my illegal drugs in your backpack, right, hypothetically, and the police search your backpack, identify the drugs and, and arrest me, I might not have a Fourth Amendment claim to suppress the search of the backpack because it's your backpack, it's not mine. And it's not clear how we should think about genetic information when the DNA that was compared on GED match wasn't D'Angelo's own DNA in the genealogical database, right? It was his cousin. DNA that was voluntarily shared in that database. And so it's unclear exactly how we think about how the Fourth Amendment applies when familial searches are or familial matches are at issue at all. There's a lot of Fourth Amendment yeah. interest, but it's unclear exactly how it all fits together. But the implication, and you, I'm going to quote from a, a recent Slate article you published, that this essentially gives rise to what amounts to a universal genetic database available for law enforcement searches uh, without any apparent control? That's my concern. Uh, I think if a law enforcement uh, decide to make um, more widespread use of these kinds of genealogical databases and perhaps other kinds of uh, genetic uh, data repositories um, for investigative uses, then it's only a matter of time before all of us are identifiable through one of those databases. Uh, I think if law enforcement wants that kind of a database to be available for their use, uh, that they at a minimum, owe it to the public to go to the legislature, convince the public, convince the legislature that that's appropriate. And then later, I suspect, convince a court that that's consistent with the Fourth Amendment. I have my doubts. What about other privacy, genetic privacy, research rules, um, state DNA ownership statutes? Are any of these in play here? You know, GINA, HIPAA, common rule, and so on? In terms of most of the statutes that protect genetic information, they are fairly limited in what they're protecting. So you mentioned GINA, that's the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. This was passed in 2008, and it's a federal law that protects against genetic discrimination, but fairly narrowly in the context of employment and health insurance. So it does not apply to the use of genetic information by other actors, including law enforcement. So that doesn't provide much protection against this type of use of genetic information. HIPAA, similarly, is the health insurance portability and accountability um, amendments. And these this really applies to the protection of health information, protected health information, um, and the information that's uploaded to, um, to sites like GED Match um, would not qualify as protected health information and therefore wouldn't fall under the protection 
protections of HIPAA. And so there, there really aren't other laws. Um, ownership laws, uh, there is no federal law that recognizes sort of individuals' ownership or property in their uh, genetic material or their biospecimens from which the, that genetic material comes. There are some state laws that have tried to extend um, genetic ownership, um, but those, again, I don't think would um, apply specifically to this case. We can look to other countries, like in the UK, they do have a Human Tissue Act, which makes it a criminal um, uh, violation to collect, store, or analyze anybody's DNA without their consent or permission, um, except for under some some you know narrow circumstances. But we don't have any such law here in the United States. Some states have investigated um, such a law, but when you kind of look at the the language of the proposed bills very carefully, oftentimes they will have the unintended consequences of limiting our ability to use genetic information in research and in clinical care um, in really important ways. And so we need to be very careful on how we address this from a legal perspective so that we can provide people with protections that we think are appropriate without unintentionally undermining the research or clinical investigation uh, using DNA or genetic material. In addition to the sort of the surveillance state uh, issues, uh, I think you've uh, both brought up the idea of sort of a disparate impact here in that the number of persons of color in government criminal databases is so great that permitting these familial partial searches would have a disparate impact. And ironically, according to a health affairs piece that came out uh, the day before we record this, uh, the major public genetic databases, GYRs, and the database of genotypes and phenotypes uh, severely underrepresent persons of color. So the disparate impact is, is twofold. One, they don't get the benefits of uh, research so much, and also they are uh, uh, in, in more legal jeopardy. Yeah, so uh, existing uh, law enforcement databases, the, the state, national, federal CODIS database system, uh, is um, it reflects the criminal justice system, which means it's overrepresented uh, or it's overrepresentative of uh, communities of color. And then when you start using familial identification methods or familial searches, uh, then you're expanding the reach of those databases to those individuals, let's say at least their first order relatives, right? Their parents, their uh, maybe their, their full genetic siblings, their children. And now that means that that kind of a database is sweeping in uh, a substantial portion of you know, American communities of color. That, that should give rise to some serious concerns about uh, fairness, equity, and criminal justice. Um, and uh, and I think it's right to point out that, that those individuals then are subject to greater genetic surveillance, but aren't um, experiencing a lot of the benefits that might come along with being able to use their genetic information to learn more about themselves, their families, their uh, their medical, their genetic health risks, etc. Uh, so so yes, race and and uh, equality <laughs> impact these kinds of uses just as they do lots of other issues throughout the criminal justice system. So let's talk a little bit about the impact of this case and these techniques on sort of existing players and stakeholders in the genetic data space. First of all, what's going to happen to these heretofore 
open sites like the one that was used for the matching here? Are they going to start closing their doors or putting up walls? I would be very surprised if they did start closing their doors. I think there's a lot of people who find tremendous value, personal value, to being able to upload their genetic information and um, be connected with people who they have uh, relations to from a genetic perspective. And so it's always a trade-off, right? And, um, you know, it's important to recognize that some people care about their privacy and their genetic privacy much more than others. Um, Natalie very articulately described the concerns and particularly the legal concerns about um, familial searches and sort of protecting individuals from being identified um, through these types of searches. And, you know, some people may have the attitude that I don't really care if you identify my relatives. That's um, if they've done something and they're a, they're a suspect of a crime, then they lose their rights altogether. And if you're going to use my DNA to match them, um, then that's okay with me. Other people feel differently about it. You know, I think one of the big underlying bioethical and legal issues that we need to address is what obligations do we as individuals and do we as a society owe, if any, to our genetic relatives? So, you know, this issue came up, uh, the first time I encountered this issue was actually the first time we ever were able to technically sequence an individual. Um, and this was back in 2007. And one of the first individuals who was sequenced was Jim Watson, who's the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, the Watson and Crick model of DNA. And we sequenced his genome. And he was very clear that he wanted to be the first person to have his genome sequenced. And he wanted to put it out there on the internet for everybody to see, because he felt like it was very important to have open science and to sort of promote the sharing of your genetic information for scientific purposes in, in a public space. And this was really the spirit behind the whole genome, human genome project, which created the reference genome of humans. And that was all done in a very open and public way. And so he was sort of very much in line with the spirit of the Human Genome Project, which he helped to lead and he wanted to have his information out there in the public. So if you actually Google Jim Watson's genome, you will pull up the entire book of his three billion base pairs, with the exception actually of his genes that are have been shown to be associated with Alzheimer's disease, which he did not want to know and he did not want to have released to the public. But one of the first things that came up for us, and I was working on this project at the time, was a question from the scientists of, can we do this, given the fact that his DNA tells us something about his adult children and his siblings and his parents? And if we're we're going to put his information out there on the internet in a very public way. Do we need their permission? Um, because it tells us something about them. And I don't think we have resolved that from either a bioethical or a legal perspective. Um, right now, from a legal perspective, at least third degree, uh, third party relatives of individuals have very little, um, if any, say over what a person does with their own DNA, even though that might tell you something about their relative. But it does suggest that you are placing family members in some sort of legal jeopardy when you when you do upload data like this. So there's an interesting counterexample to what Amy was talking about before, which is that researchers in Europe sequenced the full genome of HeLa cells, which are now very famous and well-known um, uh, and have long been well-known in the scientific community for their various research uses. Um, and those cells originated with a woman named Henrietta Lacks, and when her sequence or the genetic sequence of HeLa cells was kind of publicly posted, her genetic relatives um, raised some concerns about how that might negatively impact 
upon them. Uh, and the researchers ended up pulling that that sequence, you know, out of public public uh, searchable spaces. And uh, working with NIH, the family coordinated uh, a, a different way of uh, regulating access to that genetic um, sequence data uh, that allowed some of the family members to be involved in decision making around that. So I think this this is a really interesting and fertile area of continuing discussion in bioethics and research ethics um, and genetic ethics more broadly um, about, you know, what, as Amy said, you know, what do we owe or what do researchers owe and what do we as individuals owe our genetic relatives in terms of consent, agreement, assent, et cetera, anything at all when we uh, share our genetic information in publicly accessible ways. What about just in the last couple of minutes, two quick questions. So first of all, should there be more transparency? I mean, should 23andMe tell you when you're downloading data from their site? Uh, you know, be careful what you do with this. It may be yours, but if you put it into a genealogy site, then it, it may be uh, open to a law enforcement search. Equally, do these genealogy sites owe some sort of warning, some kind of transparency? Clearly, they 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 don't seem to be able to be able to protect your privacy. Should they should they tell you that they can't? So most of these sites, Twenty Three and Me, Ancestry DNA, uh, and even GED Match, their um, terms of use or their privacy policies, you know, state you know, we cannot protect your privacy one hundred percent. The way in which they uh, disclose that information is m more or less precise, right, or more or less easily accessible. And as we know, m most people. Um, click through uh, uh, user agreements and privacy policies without reading them. But, you know, the the privacy policies for um, the direct-to-consumer um, services typically state that they will be required to disclose uh, genetic data if compelled to do so by a court order, um, which, you know, is is one of the things that happened in the course of the police investigation in the Golden State Killer case in this kind of false lead that, that police were pursuing. Um, uh, 23andMe has a transparency report on their website where they say they're reporting every, every instance in which uh, government requests access to user data, and they say that they've successfully rebuffed each and every one of those requests. Um, so there is some transparency there, uh, but you know it's transparency in places that people may not be um, fully appreciating or accessing. And Amy, just to end with one final question to you: In a world in which increasingly researchers, research institutions such as yours, are interested in very large-scale research projects, do you think these kinds of cases, this type of publicity, media coverage, will have an adverse impact on things like the Precision Medicine Initiative? Well, I hope not. I think, you know, there there are important distinctions to be made. In the research context, we do have additional protections in the sense that you can get uh, researchers and institutions can get a certificate of confidentiality, um, which does protect research data from compelled disclosure um, through a subpoena or something uh, when law enforcement requests it. Um, you know, the, the certificates of confidentiality, we've strengthened those protections uh, recently through revisions to um, the common rule and through uh, other legislation like 21st century 
Trade Cures Act. Um, so we've tried to make those uh, more mandatory for certain types of research, and we've also tried to make them um, provide stronger protections. They, of course, haven't been challenged in a court of law, so it would be um, important to see how they hold up. But, um, you know, I think it is in this day and age, it is increasingly important um, that we are able to generate and share massive amounts of data about individuals, um, including genetic data, for the purposes of research and for the purposes of clinical care. And, um, you know, we're, we're increasingly using genetic information to diagnose people, to understand what's going on with their health, and to hopefully eventually start treating people differently from a medical perspective. And we can't do that unless we have millions of samples that we're able to use um, to compare sort of what and to learn about what different variants um, in our genome mean for our health and um, and our our uh, risks of future disease. So I really sincerely, I think this is a very important conversation for us to be having, um, but I do think we need to kind of separate out genetic information that's shared in a very voluntary way in very, very public databases like these genetic genealogy databases from research and clinical data, which um, equally need to be shared, but are, are hopefully being shared in ways that provide a lot more protections. Um, and to me, the most important thing from a research and clinical perspective is that we set up our systems in a way with transparency, with security me mechanisms in place, with sanctions in place for, for people who violate the rules such that we have a trustworthy system and it doesn't, stories like this don't impede our ability to move forward. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professors McGuire and Ram for joining us. Amy, you can find on Twitter at McGuireAmy. Natalie isn't on Twitter, so I guess if you want to contact her there, uh, see if you can find one of her family members and get a partial match. Thank you both for joining me. Fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. I hope you'll both be back sometime. Thank you very much. Thank you. We post our show notes at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>